The Naval Institute podcast is brought to you by Lockheed Martin. At Lockheed Martin, our mission is to keep you mission ready. And the F-35 Lightning II delivers. From the factory line to the front lines, we're there to see your mission through from start to finish, ensuring our men and women in uniform have a decisive advantage and come home safe every time. It's your mission that defines our purpose because lives depend on it. Lockheed Martin, your mission is ours. Welcome to the Naval Institute Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll. I'm joined by my co-host, the editor-in-chief of Proceedings Magazine, Bill Hamlet. Hello, Bill. Hey, Ward. So today, we're out of the office we here today. We're a little, a little road, road trip. trip over here to Arlington, beautiful Arlington on a dreary day. Um, let's make one last pitch for West next week. We'll have the podcast rig out there. We hope to have some good gets like Ellen Lord and maybe Admiral Davidson. Um, we'll see based on their schedule. But we will be doing our daily wrap-up as we have for the last two years, so We'll let our regular listeners look forward to that. Yeah, San Diego Convention Center, 2 and 3 March, uh, West 2020 should be big, as always. And uh, Paul Kingsbury, our other sometime uh, co-host, will be there with us. The OIC of the Hampton Roads debt, USNI Hampton Roads debt. All right, so our road trip today here is to uh, the Chief of Naval Personnel in Arlington, Virginia. We're interviewing Vice Admiral John Nowell who wrote in a proceedings article in January, we must win today's war for talent. Admiral Nowell, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. Good to be here, guys. And uh, I'm sorry, though, that anyone is happy to be escaping Annapolis and rolling into <laughs> inside the Beltway. So that tells me something. So, sir, uh, we've heard in the last couple of years, first-term retention in the Navy has been pretty much at an all-time high. So what's going right in uh, the naval personnel world? Yeah. I, you know, we think um, we won't chalk it all up to what we've been doing with uh, Sailor 2025, but we do think um, that as we've been offering sailors more uh, flexibility, more choice, uh, and um, that that is uh, making a difference. Uh, so we think uh, we think that that's one uh, piece part of it. Uh, we uh, Quite frankly, we think as we look at this uh, at this era, uh, which is back to the maritime era, back to great power competition, very similar uh, when many of us uh, first started. Um, and, you know, that's, uh, that's a tremendous sense of duty and purpose. And I think that resonates uh, with the sailors as well. And quite frankly, um, just kind of finishing up, I think as you look at, uh, at compensation and at benefits, um, we're in a pretty good place. Again, um, you know, when you look at pay raises, we are, and when you compare uh, specialties uh, within the Navy to civilian sector, uh, we compare very, very well. Um, and uh, retirement benefits, health benefits. I, so I think all of that combines uh, to make the Navy uh, an employer of choice. And, and we're seeing that in the numbers. So your article talks about three basic prongs to the new initiative, Sailor 2025, uh, ready, relevant learning, and the third one is? Career readiness. Career readiness. Right. So can you explain uh, sort of basically each one of those elements? Sure. So um, so first, I guess I preface, you know, Sailor 2025 started in 2015, and it really started because Admiral Moran at the time, who was CNP, um, you know, looked at uh, what lay ahead uh, and he knew that we needed to do things differently with the way we manage talent, that we needed to get away from an industrial age personnel system, 
uh, both both process policy as well as the IT you know infrastructure that supports it. Uh, and so that's where we started. Uh, ultimately, as we talk about MPT&E transformation, Remind AVHR is the way we've branded ourselves now. Um, it you know transformation is going to help us scale things, but a lot of Sailor 2025 was about changing. Um, things that we can change without any new IT. So again, uh, you know, Ward with three uh, pillars. Uh, the first, personnel system modernization. So that is how do we manage that talent? Um, everything uh, from how do we advance folks. Uh, so meritorious advancement program is, is always an example that we like to use where who has a better view of who's ready to be advanced, and we don't want to advance any sailor before they're ready based on proficiency, experience, capability. But in 2015, we brought MAP back, uh, or let me rephrase, we, we, we brought MAP on, uh, and it's not just the son or daughter of the command advancement program. It's, it's truly based on merit. 5% of the advancements in 2015 were through MAP. 20% are being done through MAP uh, now. Uh, we've done things like modernizing um, how we do the assignment process. Um, when I'd go out and talk to sailors in the fleet, a lot of them would talk about uh, the career management system ID or CMS ID. And, and even though we'd improved it, and it's not, it's not fair to say that everybody hated it, but a lot of folks didn't like it very much. Um, and so... We, we've taken that, we've morphed it into what we now call My Navy Assignments that gives sailors more, uh, a more transparent look at all of the billets that are out there, not just the ones that are available for, for their particular slating cycle. They can go in and bookmark them so that they can track them over time. Uh, we improve the features for our pack sailors, our professional apprentice career track sailors. Um, we improved how they can compare ratings to see where there's commonality, to see if they want to do conversions. Again, back to that flexibility and, and options. And here, uh, if I can swing the funding piece, uh, then by the end of this calendar year, we're going to try and, and, uh, and morph our uh, career waypoint, Seaway, how you re-enlist into my Navy assignments, and then and then we'll really have what I think of as as a uh, a pretty good instantiation of the detailing marketplace, which is quite simply how do I take monetary and non-monetary incentives? How do I take billets that we have all over the world, and how do I match sailors to those billets? Where some may tell me, "Hey, I want to stay in San Diego, and I'm willing to stay at my level." Uh, without advancing, um, if you'll just give me that geographic stability. Others may say, hey, I'm willing to do two sea tours back to back if I can advance sooner. Others will say, hey, I'm looking for that SRB. Um, and so the trick is what incentivizes each sailor. So all of those, and there's, and there's many, many other initiatives within that. There's about 50 kind of living, breathing initiatives at any one time within Sailor 2025. But those are representative of some of what we're doing in that personnel system modernization pillar. Does that does no, that, that make sense? sense? And I'm just thinking back to you know the the era um, of message boards and phone calls with your detailer. 
there was no way to have a comprehensive look at what was available, right? I mean, you'd, you'd get the message that said, here's sort of what's there, and then you'd call your detailer, and he'd selectively read you in on available things. So this is really a game changer to just sort of go, let's just call it open kimono right. with the realm of the possible. And I think that that should engender trust, right, between you and the clients, which are the sailors. Yeah, Has that we, been one of the outcomes of that? I, I think it's safe to say that it has. And I, you know, what I will tell you, too, is that um, we're trying to be um, honest up front, regardless of uh, which pillar we're in for Sailor 2025 or with some of our transformation efforts. Um, we're not we're not trying to get perfect out there in 10 years. We're trying to get good enough, something that's better for them now, uh, where we minimize any risk to personnel or their families with respect to career implications. Uh, but we want to get good out there, and then we want to spiral it and make it better. And I think, and, and so we want their feedback. We want them to tell us when we screw it up. A great example of that is the My Navy Career Center Contact Center. So My Navy Career Center is what you'll hear us talk about, MNCC. It's a different construct for delivering customer service. So if you think about what you just used as as an example, I called my detailer up, and I suspect you didn't get him or her on the first try. You probably left a few messages. You may have sent a few emails. Um, and not through any malice of forethought, but given that a for and this is officers, right, which is far yeah. easier than enlisted sailors have ever had it with respect to detailing and assignments. But if a JO detailer is managing a couple thousand constituents, then that's pretty hard to just get what might be a fairly basic question answered. So this idea of actually having a My Navy Career Center um, where we where we link all those different tiers of support in from what you can find online to calling into a contact center. We have two of those now, 24-7. Anybody in the world can call in and talk to somebody that's either going to be in Millington at the contact center there or at another contact center now that we've stood up in Little Creek. And what we find is that, you know, probably 80% of the questions that sailors have, officer enlisted, or their families, or retirees, or civilians, we can answer in that first pass. Um, Very, very similar to the way we do banking or insurance now, uh, if you think about that. And where we can't, we'll give them a, a ticket, and then we'll go to Tier 2 or Tier 3, where we're going to um, some of the, the back office experts uh, that you just mentioned. Um, we... I, I, I personally think that we may have oversold it a little bit on the front end, and it was it was very, very good, but we listen. And a great example of that is that as we, as we look at our ships and who helps sailors on the front line with their pay and personnel issues, we have what are called command uh, pay and personnel assistance, CPPAs. Um, in, in most cases, this is, this is a duty that a that a PS or a YN on a ship is going to have. It's not, you know, it's it's not a designated, that's the only thing they do. There, there may be other things they do. And one of the things that we found was that we had originally told the CPPAs, hey, just call into the, call into the contact center and we'll answer your questions. Well, what we had was a pro from Dover, right, because we've increased the amount of training that we're given those CPPAs. They're calling the contact center 
and they're getting a call agent who is very good, who has knowledge management articles is what you call it in, in call center, uh, you know, parlance. Um, but, but what you really want is a pro from Dover talking to a pro from Dover. So we then said, okay, let's, let's go ahead and take the best call agents and form a small cell that when a CPPA calls in with a command issue for their sailors, they then get to this specialized um, cadre of folks. We then said, you know what, that's not quite good enough either. So we went ahead and went around the campus there in Millington, and we took, you know, 10 or so of our best uh, PSs, YNs, the, the folks uh, who have been out there and have done that work as CPPAs uh, or been at the PSDs, and, and we took them out of their, uh, you know, day and night jobs and put them into that cell, and we're getting rave reviews on that. So I use that as an example of we, we rolled something out, and it's better than what sailors had before, but not perfect. We listened to their feedback, and we then morphed it to make it better. And I'm certain we can make it even better still. But that is the way, as we look at this first pillar of Sailor 2025, it's the approach we're using across everything that we're doing right now with My Navy HR. But certainly, as we look at uh, that first pillar and how we've stood up the MNCC concept in these two contact centers, um, you know, it's it's the way that uh, it's the way we're trying to deliver some of that modernized personnel support. Um, so, any questions though on that first pillar, of Sailor Twenty Twenty? That makes sense to me. Okay. Uh, question on uh, ready, relevant learning. So, a couple of years ago, when that was started, uh, it, the big biggest change that I remember was that sailors, instead of going from uh, you know right out of boot camp to a school in, and then on to a command, a school at least the number of people who went to A school was greatly reduced, right? And so they went to a command and they then maybe went back to an A school later on. How is that progressing now? Is that sure. is that the progression now? And are most ratings not going to A school before they go to a ship or a submarine or yeah. a squadron? So, uh, so Bill, good question. Um, so actually most ratings do get some uh, type of A school before they get to the ship. Even our, even our uh, professional apprentice career track sailors, our pack sailors, We'll get uh, we'll get some you know some fundamental A school in route. What what we were finding though is that um, we we had a lot of sailors that were going through A school, um, and and let's say that uh, that they were getting you know four weeks worth of training for their specialty. They would get to their ship, and in their first apprentice level job, they might only use you know. Uh, what they learned in two out of the four weeks or three out of the four weeks. And then we would have to give them that sense. And then, you know, out of those folks, some would then uh, get out after their first term. So that was wasted training, if you will. And then because it also took us longer to get them to the ships. And then for those who stayed in that were, that then would use that kind of training uh, when they got back out, we, we had to give it to them again because those skills had atrophied. Uh, or the technology, um, or the subject matter had changed. So ready, relevant learning, um, it, it really is as simple as the right training at the right time for the right sailor. Uh, we've got, we started it with first doing what we call block learning. So we say, hey, let's just make sure with the current content, are we giving you what you need at the right time? And for some, that's going to be, you get this much in A school, you get out to the fleet, and about 
you know, 18 months later, when the ship says that they have time, then we get you back for another couple of days or a week. We, and, we're, and we want to push that training to the fleet concentration areas, not, for instance, bringing them back to Great Lakes or, or Meridian or, you know, somewhere else. Um, and so that on the block learning, uh, we've got 54 ratings uh, that we have, we have moved into block learning. And so we're kind of done with, with that phase. And I, I would, would just make the point that, <clears throat> one, uh, when, we, when we start talking about numbers of ratings for ready, relevant learning, there are some that will roll into it. Um, there are others that won't because they're already uh, basically in it. For instance, think some of the nuke ratings uh, or uh, special warfare. There are others where because uh, there's joint training that's involved, think uh, air intercept or excuse me, air traffic controllers, uh, where it's a joint school, at least for right now, we're not, they're not uh, in ready relevant learning. But of the 54 ratings that are going to go in, um, we've, we've already transitioned. We finished last year with transitioning all of them to block learning. Right training at the right time with the content we have now. Uh, and again, if you need to go back, the ship gets to define that. And if a CO says, I can't afford to let Bill Hamlet go right now, then we don't send Bill Hamlet right now. Um, the next phase of that, though, which I think is more exciting, is, you know, a lot has changed uh, in the way that we teach people. Um, you know, most folks don't want to listen to Ferris Bueller's professor. I, hopefully, some most of the folks listening to this podcast know who Ferris Bueller's professor is. I, I did this in an audience uh, a couple of weeks ago. And all the sailors looked at me like, "No, it's scary." Who the heck is Ferris no, Bueller's I, I do, professor? I do Top Gun analogies during Bleep Summer, and they don't get it. Right. I, it's like, are you kidding me? Yeah, I that, know. It's that a, cultural touchstone. Yeah. Is, is Caddyshack, Caddyshack is yeah, gone yeah, too. Right? Like, it's yeah. a it's a little disconcerting. Now that said, they know they don't like listening to an old dude drone on and on, and nor do they like looking at PowerPoint slides. Right. So, how have we modernized um, the way that we can deliver learning? Uh, some of that is um, more immersive. Some of it's on their, uh, you know, sort of on their own terms, whether it's uh, self-paced, whether it's on their tablet. Some of it's virtual, uh, and, and, but most of it is a blend. So we delivered our first modernized uh, A-School, uh, Operation Specialist A-School here last year, last September, um, and, uh, and the results have, uh, have been very, very positive. And we'll now continue that with more and more ratings going into this modernizing the course content. We're, and we're using professionals to help us figure that out with the type commanders, okay, who are in charge of those ratings saying, yep, the, the con that content is right. This is what we need them to understand. But you'll see that number increasing. And this is a life cycle. So some folks say, well, when does ready relevant learning end? And the answer is it doesn't end. It's, it, you know, the whole idea of relevant is that we keep it living and breathing. And, and as we, and then we loop back around periodically to make sure, um, that we've got it right. And the last thing that I'll just mention with it, cause I am a, I'm an old SWO. Um, and when I'm in an audience with a bunch of surface warfare officers, I, I very bluntly say, Hey, uh, ready, relevant learning is not a repeat of the revolution in training. And the revolution in training was done for a reason. It wasn't that computer-based training was not good. 
but but we made mistakes. We we made a mistake when we did away with the surface warfare officer school for our division officers. We acknowledge that. So, but there's a lot of scar tissue out there, and so my point. Uh, to uh, leaders, um, whether young or old, uh, and who have that scar tissue or not, is that we're not we're not repeating that. This is fleet centric. Fleet forces is the executive agent uh, for this. And then, as we look at Netsi, as we look at Nabair, there are a lot of folks that have piece parts to help bring this online. But at the end of the day, the folks that that are able to give it uh, a thumbs up or a thumbs down are folks on the waterfront, the fleet commanders and those uh, type commanders. So so that's kind of ready, relevant learning in a nutshell. So what kind of feedback are you getting? So OSA uh, school is at Damneck. Mm-hmm. What kind of feedback are you getting now that that's the first one that you've experimented with and you're four or five months into this? And so there have been classes that have graduated and provided some feedback on how that RRL, yeah, o, you know, a school is, is no, it's enjoying. it's it's very positive, and actually, and and and, uh, and actually, not 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 at Damn Neck. Uh, a previous uh, you know version was actually at Great Lakes. Okay. So yeah, so um, but no, it's been it's been very um, it's been very positive, and you know, some of this too is um, it's uh, for instance, in the previous one, we didn't have the voyage management system, which is what we expect them to be able to use when they first get to the ship. So some of it, you just go, wow, I should have had a V8. How could we have not had that in there before? So it's not necessarily super whamadyne, look at this totally immersive technology. Incidentally, I'll share with you that uh, for any of the folks that are listening, if they have a chance, though, to go to one of the LCS training facilities, um, that really uh, shows, um, I, I think, a great example of the whole gamut of the kind of uh, technology you want to bring to bear for ready, relevant learning from uh, sort of instructor-facilitated individual students on computers in a kind of a 3D environment uh, to virtual, to hands-on, to team building and mission building, and, and then where they then get down into the mission bay. We're, we, don't, we don't do it that way for all of the ratings. Um, but it's a great example also of sort of the RRL approach. So if, however far down to unit level you can push it, that's, that's the way to go. Is that sort of what you're saying with yeah, the LCS example? It, 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 it is. I, I think um, so the, the trick here too, right? I mean, if I'm a, if I'm a ship commanding officer, one, I, I, I want you to deliver me a full up round, right? I want a sailor that is that is uh, trained with what they need to do and then I'm not and then quite frankly I'm looking for them to continue self-learning on the job training PQS at a certain point maybe getting them back for some more training but it's but I do want to um, but but we do want to be careful as we look at where we need to bring them back we've done studies to see if we need to add sailors and we have added a few sailors uh, when we look at ship classes based upon what some of the RL will bring to account for the fact that, yeah, there will be some training that will be inherent in addition to all their other duties where it will take them, it may take them off the ship. Uh, there'll be others where, where we really are trying to get more and more to um, how do you continue your training? Um, when, you, when we talk about the third pillar, uh, which is career readiness, um, one of the things there that we really push is how do we develop you as a leader and as a sailor? How do we develop you as a continual learner? And uh, and when I'm out talking to sailors, I always make the point 
that if you're not a continual learner, um, you're going to fall behind in the Navy and you're going to fall behind in the civilian world um, because that's just that's where we are now. So however they do it, um, they've got to hone that, whether they like listening to podcasts like this, which I particularly do, whether they like reading a book, whether they like uh, doing an online course, whether they like looking at, you know, how to do a certain evolution on YouTube. Um, you know, we all do that. Uh, but, but they've got to, they've got to hone, hone that. So what, what are the elements of that career, career readiness, that, that, career readiness that you sure. prescribe? What, what, what yeah. are the things? So, so career readiness. Um, so again, this, this issue of health, wellness, resilience, and toughness. So let me, let me first, um, talk to you about, uh, what we're now calling warrior toughness. Uh, we're back in an era of great power competition. Uh, we're back into high-end uh, maritime warfare and the, and the need to have that capability. And, uh, and we're back to the likelihood um, that ships will take damage and they will need to then fight through that damage uh, to win. So, one, we're trying to get from, from what in the past you'd call a culture of compliance. Uh, a culture of compliance is still necessary. You need the check sheets. You need to be able to to go ahead and, uh, and you know, work your way down to make sure you've got all the checks in the block. A culture of compliance uh, means that if you get hit, you maybe you survive, uh, you keep the ship from sinking, uh, or, you know, you know how to don and inflate your life vest. I, I don't mean to make it sound too simple there. And, and that is really important. A culture of excellence, though, is have we built the resilience and toughness in you that like, you know, Ernie Evans, you know, on Johnston, do you, do you then charge the enemy to, and let me be a little careful on the podcast with the, with the language <laughs> I use, but, but you get my point. Do, do you, do you, uh, can you, can you take a hit and can you get up and can you win? And so at, um, so when we looked at RTC, when we looked at boot camp, we found that boot camp, about two years ago, we did an in-depth study, brought folks in from the fleet and other subject matter experts within sort of the mine AVHR realm, but as well as fleet reps. Um, and from, uh, from, uh, enlisted all the way through, uh, you know, a, uh, one-star, uh, admiral who led the, led the look. We found that over time we had turned, uh, boot camp, instead of sort of a crucible to develop those uh, tough warriors into a place where we were doing a lot of PowerPoint slides, uh, you know, they knew how to fold their socks quite well. Uh, they could stay on a schedule. Um, but, but they were getting to the ships and the commanding officers and the command master chiefs uh, or to a squadron or to a boat. And they were saying, hey, um, we need we need a little bit more here than kind of what you're sending us. And so we have turned all that on its head. So now they're doing reps and sets. Uh, they'll, they'll get up in the middle of the night. They'll be woken up in the middle of the night to go ahead and uh, do a hose handling drill and, and fight a simulated fire. And I'm talking in their barracks, right, with hoses that we've got. They do seamanship evolutions. They do damage control evolutions. They do watch standing. And again, this all came from the deck plates from the chiefs there at RTC who said, we need, you know, we need to get back to being brilliant on the basics. And then, uh, and then to layer this toughness and resilience piece, uh, we actually went to a community, the SEALs, who have done a lot of work uh, in this area, right? And, um, 
And so we got a psychologist, a chaplain, and a SEAL together. We locked them in a room, and we said, tell us how you, what, what you would do uh, to help these recruits do better, not just with the, with the resilience, uh, but with the toughness. And so they came up with something that we call mind, body, spirit. And, and it encompasses all of those. And so when I go out and I talk to recruits and we, we teach them the, the word that we use is recalibrate. So you might see them on the, on the board uh, there at the, uh, at the pool at Great Lakes where they're going to do the, the high jump off. And a lot of these kids, they've never jumped from that height and they're not great swimmers. So there's a lot of trepidation. You'll see them stop take some deep breaths, say recalibrate, and then they do it and they do it successfully. They use that as I'm out and about, they use that out in the fleet as well. So we've got about 10 and a half, 11 hours of that. So one piece part of this is how are we developing you to be um, healthier, looking at your wellness, and then this culture of excellence and the warrior toughness within the COE as well. Um, I'd like everyone to know we're we're trying to we're trying to look at uh, where we develop individuals and teams to create a culture where instead of focusing on destructive behaviors, right? Um, how many DUIs? How many alcohol-related incidents? How many sexual assault, sexual harassment, and suicides? We focus on all of these, but how do we holistically build teams and individuals? Where, um, where we don't have those destructive behaviors, we have signature behaviors, we call them. We could, we could spend a whole podcast talking about that, but the linchpin to all of that is deck plate leadership. It's command resilience teams. And so you've seen there's been a lot of work here at the four-star level with the three fleet commanders and with the CNO um, at getting after that as well. So so career readiness encompasses all of that, as well as how are we taking care of uh, sailors' families. Um, we haven't talked a lot about it. I told you about the contact centers, but we're driving more and more onto mobile uh, apps so that sailors can use their personal devices, multi-factor authentications, things like the My Navy Family app, where spouses can, can get in there and get any of their questions answered, My PCS Mobile uh, where you can get in, do an, uh, you know, an interactive checklist, pre-populated, sign into the Child Development Center, sign into the housing waiting list, and then ultimately take receipts, uh, take a picture of them, upload them, and then, uh, and then send that in electronically from your iPhone to get your PCS claim paid. We've got PCS travel claims for the Navy down to about 20 days right now. Holy That's pretty good, isn't it? So the technology behind this is working, right? The technology, the tradition technology of this behind this is working. That's yeah. incredible. So I, got, I got a question about uh, demand signal for you. So sure. two years ago, three years ago, the Trump administration put out the you know the 355-shift Navy. Sure. So there was a lot talked about at that time that the demand signal – for naval personnel was going to go way up to, because we're suddenly not just maintaining a navy but building a navy. Uh, now there's some question about whether 355 is achievable and what mix of ships and uh, manned and unmanned. Uh, but how how big is the bow wave that you're facing right now to uh, to build the people to man the ships that the navy is going to have? You know, a year, two, three years from now, are you increasing the throughput at RTC, and, and to what extent? Yeah, Bill, that's a great question. Um, so, 
So if you look from the end of FY17, so we were we were downsizing the Navy through 16, and then we went to um, the this building toward a 355-ship Navy, okay? Um, and so we had to turn that aircraft carrier around. In 16, if you said you wanted to leave the Navy, we didn't just show you the door. We kicked you in the seat of the pants <laughs> to get you out, all right? Uh, we all, and, and, um, and I don't, that sounds facetious. We all know sailors where, boy, do I wish I could go back and capture, you know, uh, Seaman Smith or Petty Officer, you know, um, you know, Schmantz now, um, because we, we, we were letting great sailors go, many of whom wanted to stay and, and we couldn't give them good enough options to keep them and we didn't need to keep them at the time. Well, that, that surely changed. So, uh, my previous job was a director of personnel policy and plans. That's called N13. So I did that for three years before this job. So as Admiral Burke was CNP, I was N13. We turned every four shaping lever that we could think high year tenure, uh, think advancements, think termination of enlisted early termination uh, program where folks were saying, hey, I want to get out early. Um, we we worked uh, all of that to try and keep everyone in that wanted to stay in and for as long as we could, as long as, as they were the kind of quality that we wanted. We increased the promotion rates, but we're, we're growing the Navy by 23,000 billets from the end of FY17 to the end of FY21. 23,000. So that'll take us up, uh, you know, around, you know, 345, 347 thousand billets, uh, officers enlisted and uh, and midshipmen. We've had to really lean into that. We're doing great with retention. That was kind of the front end piece of this discussion. How are we doing so well? And I told you what I thought, but we're achieving about 77% retention um, across, you know, zone A, zone B, zone C. That's, that's near record highs. Um, we, since in FY16, we brought in, uh, 30,800 sailors. And then in FY17, we brought in just over 35. In 18 and 19, we brought in 39,000 sailors. And in, uh, FY20, in this year, we're going to bring in 40,800. So, so we've really greatly increased the number that we're bringing in. Um, I need to knock the attrition down at, at RTC a little bit. We want to, some, some attrition is good and healthy, um, but we're working that uh, pretty hard because it's really expensive to go, to find recruits and then bring them in and onboard them. Um, but the team is doing a super job there. And so now the trick is going to be, how do you sustain that? And while I don't want um, the the listeners, I don't mean to draw them into inside the beltway echelon one, um, you know, work too much. But this idea of total ownership cost of manpower, how do you apply that? And so when when the resource sponsor for surface warfare buys the DDG Flight 3 and they and we resource the billet for that ship, we also buy the student overhead recognizing that we've got to put them through school to get them there. We buy the PCS to go ahead and move them on and off, um, you know, and, and not to get into all what all those bins are, but that's helped us to do a better job to resource it properly. So we're leaning into it. Um, there are uh, there are certainly 
uh, gaps at sea, but, but I think we're closing those and we're buying more of those requirements. Again, getting after that, you know, the 23,000 increase, um, yes, it takes me about two years to get a sailor, you know, from, from raising their right hand uh, out to a fleet uh, operational unit. And sometimes those operational units are ashore, right? Think about some of our cyber warriors and, and others. Um, but we're leaning into it pretty aggressively and, uh, and we're making inroads. How is uh, naval aviation retention going? So that's been a topic in our pages the last couple of years is particularly things like uh, department head screen rate for, uh, you know, Super Hornet and Growler guys sure. uh, and gals. Um, uh, the throughput through the uh, training command, you know, the, the, there were some problems with the T-45s, et cetera. So how is that going on, on naval aviation right now? Yeah, it. Um, I, I would. So I was in Lemoore and Fallon actually with the vice chief and with Bullet Miller, uh, the air boss here, right before Christmas. Um, and so, uh, so one, we it costs so much money, as both of you know, right, to to build and grow a naval aviator that can that can fly an F eighteen or fly the Joint Strike Fighter or oh by the way. Uh, flying SH-60 Romeo or Sierra, you name the platform, um, all uh, all are really, really critical uh, as we look at where we're going. So where we are most challenged right now is in VFA, is in our, is our TAC Air and our VAQ. Um, and so we've tackled that uh, with increasing some of the monetary incentives, think department head, retention bonus, uh, continuation pays. We've linked merit. Uh, to to some of those as well, um, and and that's been very well received. And then what I hear though from the JOs is it's not just about money; it's about do I get the flying hours? Do they have the spare parts to keep my jet uh, up? Um, what's it like living in Lemoore or Fallon? What can we big Navy do uh, to make that easier? Right? I mean, arguably, if you love the outdoors, beautiful places. Um, if you're a single J.O., uh, it can be, right? I'm always suspect when they go, it's great fishing. Yeah, and That's the pitch right. for why you would be and, stationed at Fallon. I, that's right. And sometimes it's hard to find a spouse fishing. What about the, um, the flight yeah. instructor piece that jumped out at me in your yeah. article? That now, sounds really isn't it neat? Cool. So, 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 again, when we, when, we talk about, um, when we talk about flexibility and options, that, that applies as much on the officer side as it does on the enlisted side. And so NDAA 19 um, was really, um, it wasn't a total rewrite of DOTMA, the Defense Officer Program Management Act. That's how we, that's how we handle and manage uh, officers in the military. But, but it was pretty substantial. And the Navy really was the leader in, in working with uh, OSD and with the Hill and the other services uh, on writing those provisions. So when we talk about officers, uh, we, we talk about a model, and it's sort of a, a pyramid. So think of a pyramid where up and out is still what many of us uh, are going to do. But uh, there are folks who say, you know, I really I love what I'm doing, and um, I acknowledge that command is all that, but I'd be happy if you could keep me in a cockpit instead of sending me to Washington, D.C. to be an action officer I'll stay in. Otherwise, I want to go fly, fly for the airlines or I'm going to go do something else. Um, so that idea of an up and stay, a, uh, you know, a technical 
or a non-command career track. And so we're talking about professional flight instructors, right? So these are O4s. Um, and, uh, and we now have an 05 or two in there as well, 41 who've been selected across three boards and who basically have said, I want to, I want you to keep me in the cockpit. I'll be an instructor. That takes pressure off a fleet squadron for providing some of those instructor pilots because I, because I love the flying piece and I like the geographic stability and I get it that I'm not going to compete well, probably for promotion or command, but that's not what I'm in it for. So how do we provide those kinds of options? We are incidentally doing that in some other areas too, because when we talk about up and stay, we also got the provision to keep officers in longer than their statutory promotion dates if the Secretary of the Navy designates it as a critical specialty. So we did two up and stay boards. This year we did one for naval attaches and defense attaches. Uh, we had five officers selected for that, and you know, if you were, uh, uh, f you know, really more so on the URL side, we would have folks that were post major command. They'd roll in there, and they were really just getting their legs underneath them as an attaché when it was statutory retirement time, and they would, they were, had, they really wanted to stay longer. So whether you're a URL or a FAO, you can do that as well as acquisition professionals. So. Uh, so up and out for many, up and stay, and then up and bring back. How do we do a better job with active component, reserve component permeability? Um, we we have other programs, for instance, like career intermission program. How do I how do I you know take a respite up to three years where I freeze frame my career? They put me in the inactive reserve. I keep my benefits, commissary, everything else. I only get a fraction of my pay but I can do whatever I want, designed uh, really for, um, with the thought being that, that it would be good for uh, female uh, sailors, officer enlisted to start families. We actually see, you know, 45% of the folks using it are, are male and people use it for all kinds of things. Um, but, but again, the more flexibility, the more options we can provide, what we want is let me let me work with you to determine the path that works for you. Everyone is incentivized a little bit differently, um, but it's once I've sailorized you, it's so much cheaper and it makes so much more sense and it's so much more effective from a warfighting readiness standpoint to keep you um, and either get you into a place where you think you can make the most difference and and that's where you want to be. Or if you say, I'd like to repurpose and do get into a different rating or a different specialty, do I have a place for you there? I can't keep bringing 40,000 sailors in, moving 90,000 sailors a year, and sending 40,000 sailors home. It's not sustainable. That's what Sailor 2025 is all about. Uh, and uh, the My Navy HR transformation will help us take what we're doing now and then scale it um, at a larger, uh, you know, at a larger level. Big topic right now, naval integration and the CNO and the Commandant of the Marine Corps are talking about it. Uh, for a long time, Navy and the Marine Corps have had some personnel integration. Uh, for example, you know, back uh, a few years ago, there were a lot of Marines guarding Navy bases and Navy installations and ships. 
Navy doctors and uh, nurses, uh, you know, spend time with the Marine Corps, you know, as do sure. uh, corpsmen. Uh, as this all, you know, my Navy HR, or are you working with my Marine Corps HR? Is there a is there a counterpart in this? And and what kinds of conversations are you having with the Marine Corps on how blue green personnel work closer together and maybe integrate more more closely? Yeah, that's a that's a really good point, Bill. Um, I, I will just tell you that from the CNO and the Commandant down, we're joined at the hip. My my Marine counterpart is Lieutenant General Mike Rocco, um, and uh, and you don't go to a meeting now inside the Pentagon where you don't sit at a table where you see, uh, you know, you see blue and green uniforms. Okay. Or we all, now, now that we're in NWUs, we all look fairly similar, but, but you, you've got, um, it is truly a naval approach. And so we are looking at where can we better integrate what you described as what we call blue and support a green BISOG, which in the past has primarily been more on the medical side, you know, the corpsman side, uh, the chaplain side, um, enablers, uh, you know, um, for fire support and things like that. You're going to see, you will see more and more of that integration. And as we look at constrained budgets, that also, as we do a better job with that integration, it will, it will help us to then be able to resource, uh, you know, more platforms, etc. But and and then I think you see um, much much more integration uh, with respect to how do we fight together? I, you know, for me, it's just natural. I had the expeditionary strike group out in Okinawa, and um, and we were setting the stage for joint strike fighter uh, to come with WASP, uh, and then you know we deploy where we had um, you know where we had the the big deck amphib with the what what most would recognize as an ARG, with Aegis cruisers, destroyers to form an, an expeditionary strike group. But, you know, when you talk about now I've got an expeditionary strike group with the joint strike fighter, uh, which can reach out, married up uh, with uh, Aegis capability to include uh, missiles, and, and oh, by the way, a V-22 Osprey that quadruples the rating range, or when you look at what the Marines are talking about with their with their expeditionary advanced basing operations, and this high end fight, not to go into it too much on a on an unclassed podcast, but um, but when when we talk uh, about what we're going to do in the future, we're, we're sitting with each other, and that includes the personnel piece, and when we talk on the hill, uh, we're sitting next to each other as we describe that. And so I, it's no understatement to say that, uh, that we're absolutely joined at the hip uh, with the Marine Corps as we look at how the Naval team uh, is going gonna, is gonna to fight and prevail uh, as part of the joint team uh, in, this next, uh, in this next era. Um, but one thing that we do know is that the most important weapon that we have is a sailor or a Marine. And so what, uh, what I'm doing with our My Navy HR team, uh, and they are, they are super, uh, is how do we do a better job managing their talent in the 21st century? So um, I guess the last thing I'd, I'd like to leave your listeners with is that um, we welcome um, their questions. We welcome their ideas. We welcome their feedback. Uh, we've got thick skin. And uh, and we'll take it on board, and we're going to get 
We're going to get some things right. We're going to get some things wrong. We'll never get something wrong uh, on purpose, and, and we'll never do something where we don't try and very closely manage the risk uh, as we look at it. Um, but we are going to try and make things better, and we're trying to do it quickly, and then we're trying to do it at scale. Vice Admiral John Nowell, the Chief of Naval Personnel Command. Uh, sir, thanks for your time today. It's been great to have you on the show. Thank you very much. It's been great to be here. And of course, go Navy, beat Army. Beat Army. All right, that'll do it for this episode. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll see you next week out at West. The Naval Institute podcast is brought to you by Lockheed Martin. At Lockheed Martin, our mission is to keep you mission ready. And the F-35 Lightning II delivers. From the factory line to the front lines, we're there to see your mission through from start to finish ensuring our men and women in uniform have a decisive advantage and come home safe every time. It's your mission that defines our purpose because lives depend on it. Lockheed Martin, your mission is ours.